this is Mason, and welcome back to Anime Attic, the show where we go into the attic and blow the dust off of old or forgotten anime from days gone by. Today, we are brought to you by Meltdown Comics, located on Sunset Boulevard, 7522. Come check us out. We're amazing. We have so much stuff going on. With me today to discuss one of the most amazing animes that I've ever come across is... Zara Fuzzle. Hello, Mason. How are you doing? Hey, Zara. Thanks for coming back. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah. Anytime. Last time we were together, we talked about one of my all-time favorite animes, Vampire vs. Mio. But today, we're going to talk about one of your all-time favorite. I'm so excited. I love this anime so much. It was one of the first animes I saw at my anime club at college. And I feel like a lot of anime clubs, you know, play this Pet Shop of Horrors because it's four episodes. It's all like Monster of the Week. It's perfect for Halloween time. Yeah, it's very creepy and cool and freaky. I found out in doing the research that the creator... Matsuri Akino specializes in Japanese fantasy horror manga. That's kind of her deal and that she's done other stuff too. I don't know if you've seen any of her other stuff. You know, I haven't. I hear she's actually did a sequel to Pet Shop of Horrors. Yeah, she did a sequel to Pet Shop of Horrors. It's called New Pet Shop of Horrors. (laughs) And uh, Tokyo. Yeah. First they did the manga and then they got picked up for a OVA series. Mm -hmm. And that garnered enough of a following that they went back and she got a second series of manga. The first was 10 volumes. It basically ran 1995 to 1998. Then the anime came out in 1999. The second series was 12 volumes of manga and that was 2005 to 2013. So she took more time with the second one. But yes, you're right. The first one apparently is set in Los Angeles. Yeah, Los Angeles Chinatown. Yeah, which I haven't been to yet. Now I want to go. I want to go wander in Chinatown. Of course, Try to find Count D. Yes, exactly. And then of course also Chinatown, the famous Jack Nicholson film is also set in ah. Los Angeles, Chinatown. So I wonder now. Field trip. Yeah, I'd love to go check it out and just see what's going on there. I was surprised to find out that Matsuri was not involved with the anime so much. It was directed by Toshio Kirata and written by someone named Wako Mako. Wako Mako, yeah. I read a little bit of the manga, not too much because we're we're focusing on the anime. Mm -hmm. But the anime takes certain parts of the manga and puts it together. Yeah, the anime is only four episodes, so they really just picked and chose a few of the stories to make anime episodes of. Whereas the manga is being 10 volumes, the story is much more expansive, there are more characters, there's an overall arc. Whereas the anime, there isn't really so much of an overall arc as just four really great stories, really cool stories. But each of those stories was in the manga, correct? Yes, yes. Yeah. And so for those who are interested, the manga basically, every volume I think is a separate story. And then of course there's subplots and through lines and stuff. Mm-hmm. But The mythology episodes, so to speak. Right, exactly. And so it lends itself to an episodic format, ideally. Zara, what drew you to this? What, oh man. What makes it so amazing for you? So I have to preface this by saying one of my favorite movies of all time growing up was Gremlins. So <laughs> when I saw Pet Shop of Horrors, I was like, oh my gosh, this is like Gremlins only so 
so much more creepier and androgynous. What initially drew me to it was, you know, the gremlins, the whole gremlins thing where I'm going to sell you a pet, but there's a contract. And if you break any of the clauses in the contract, I'm not going to be responsible for what might happen to you. Like that whole thing to me is, I love that kind of trope. I did actually wonder after watching this anime, which came first, gremlins or this? Because right? they, they seem almost identical. I mean, you have this this ancient pet shop in Chinatown, Chinatown. where a man sells obscure Pets animals. of the East. Yeah, exactly. Animals that are not available anywhere, and they come with these conditions. Mm-hmm. And if you violate the conditions, you better watch out. Aside from that trope being something that really drew me in, what kept me hooked was just the storytelling aspect of it. Each episode is just a really interesting mystery story. Like you, the viewer, you're not clued in as to what's really going on. So you're kind of figuring out the story at the same time the characters are. Um, So I just love those good mystery stories. And finally, the thing that really, really compelled me was the relationship between the two central characters. The comedy and their banter between them is just so endearing and so fascinating to watch. Yeah, we'll definitely talk about the two main characters in there relationship. It's fascinating. Since this is your favorite, I'm going to let you lead it off. Okay. Set set the scene for us. We're going to talk about episode one, I guess. Well, how do you want to do it? You want to do what we did for Miu and break it down? Okay. So episode one is entitled Daughter, and it essentially focuses on two parents who have recently lost their daughter named Alice, and they visit this pet shop in Chinatown, and Count D is the proprietor of this shop. He claims he's, oh, I'm 10 the shop. My grandfather is out of town, so I'm looking after the shop uh, in his stead. Let's talk a little bit about this character, Count D. Sure. Let's talk about him. One thing that I noticed is that you're correct. He is a very, very beautiful, He's very, a very androgynous man. Yeah. Is he? Is he more beautiful than Larva? I'm more very... beautiful than Larva, but wow. in an entirely different way. What about Akio? Is he more beautiful than Akio? <laughs> <laughs> no one's more beautiful than Akio. There you go. No, he's, he's, it's so interesting, Count D. One, one of these days, I want to have a, a top 10 Bishonen, Bishonen review with, with you because <laughs> all of the men are so beautiful. Like, what about Alan Shizar? Is he I more know. beautiful than Alan Shizar? Gosh, you know, it's different. It's strange because I don't really look at Count D as male or female, though he is definitely male. Yeah, I think he's decidedly male, but I think he's asexual. And he's extremely feminine in his affectations of speech and clothing and style. Yeah. Um, And it all cultivates this kind of aura of mystery about him. And there's a little bit of a sinister element to him too. Yeah, there's definitely a vibe that he's not human. Mm -hmm. And of course, a couple things I noticed. One is he has different colored eyes. One eye is, I believe blue or purple and the other one is is gold Mm -hmm. which as we know from Miu ties in with the fact that vampires have gold eyes so count d i am of course wondering what does the d stand for is it Uh. is it in fact dracula and if so is he descended in some way from that although he's chinese and not japanese and of course dracula Mm -hmm. was a european but of course if we ever get around to talking about vampire hunter d that doesn't really matter (laughs) so yes i definitely get the otherworldly vibe to him and Mm -hmm. he's got this pet shop and he's something about the incense at the pet shop. It's, yes. It does something to kind of take you into the other world. I noticed that he doesn't say that he sells pets. When they say, what do you sell here? He says, I sell hopes and dreams and fantasies. Exactly. How can you say that? You know our merchandise is love and dreams, detective. 
And I always tell you the truth. Exactly. Well, he does actually sell regular pets yeah. when the episode opens. We see him um, sending off a little girl a with little a bird. A little girl with a bird, like a regular bird. And throughout the series, too, we see him all around town visiting pets that he sold to various prominent members of society. Like he sold a penguin to the mayor. Right. And he sold a, <laughs> a yeah. cat to the chief of police. Yeah. Th- there's normal pets there, too. Right. Or are they? Or are they? And do they just appear as normal pets to other people? Although probably not because I believe one of the rules of the contracts always is never right. let any, never but let this... anyone else see the animal that I sell. But uh, we'll, we'll, we'll get into that. Yeah. So these parents of the deceased Alice come to Count D's pet shop. Grief stricken. Uh, grief stricken. And essentially Count D says, well, I have something special I can show you in the back room. Come with me. The mother is looking for a replacement for her daughter and she's grief stricken and she openly beseeches him. Please give me something that will assuage my grief. I miss my daughter endlessly. I just want something that I can care and love for and you know, basically take the place of my daughter. Mm-hmm. Why they don't aim to have another child is never discussed, but Count D does say, yes, I have the perfect thing for you in the back. So he leads them to the back room and reveals a girl dressed very much like Alice from Alice in Wonderland. Same type of hair, frilly dress. And the parents are shocked. They're like, what, What, Alice? How are you here? And Count D says, no, 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 don't be mistaken. This is a rabbit. Which kind of sets up this whole thing. When I first saw that, I thought humans, <laughs> human slavery that you are marketing, quote, as, a, as animals. Oh. Basically, they're looking at a human girl who I guess looks remarkably if like not identical to their daughter. And he's like, no, 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 she's a rabbit. You know, everything short of wink. <laughs> and the dad is like, how can you sell this girl? I, I mean, this rabbit. And so he's like, we'll take the rabbit. But anyway. Yeah. So it's unclear. And this is a question that we can talk about later. What causes the people to see the animals? Because they are animals. To see the animals as humans. And more specifically, at least in the anime, all the manifestations of the pets are women or female. You're you're correct. It's very interesting that they're I've I read in the manga that some of the pets are male. Yeah. yeah. So I, I think that's an interesting decision that I guess the director made to yeah. only only focus on the female. The female stories. So Count D says you can take this rabbit, but there are three conditions. First, yeah. you can't show her to anybody. Two, make sure the incense that I give you does not burn out. And three, only feed her fruits and vegetables, nothing else, even if she begs for it. Yeah, no matter what she does, only feed her basically rabbit food. Yeah, even if she begs. Yes. So the parents are like, yes, yes, we'll do anything you ask. We'll take it. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, they're they're looking at their reincarnated daughter. They're, <laughs> they're willing to, to do it all. And just as a side note, Gremlins came out in 1984. Yeah. So I'm going to go ahead and say that Mat- Matsuri was inspired. Yeah, inspired. Because it's, it's the same three rules. Uh, mm-hmm. No sunlight, no water. and No food after midnight. Right. So similar uh, concept. And so they go off. Enter the scene. One of my favorite characters in all of anime, Detective Leon Orcott. All of anime. All of anime. Wow. I love Leon. I mean, I He's like such a Leon. Hot-headed I mean, yeah, guy. but but all of anime. That's, I know that's intense. I haven't seen a lot of anime, Mason. No, I'm I, I disagree with that <laughs> statement. I think you're on par. I love Leon, and I love his mullet, and I love how he, he does have a very amazing '80s mullet. <laughs> he does. It's it's and it's blonde, so it's great. <laughs> and he often wears these cut off T-shirts, like cut off on the arms, and yeah, with his, he always got a cigarette in his mouth. Uh, no. Yeah, he's got a cigarette in his mouth a lot. Not always, but often okay. they'll cut to a shot, and he's like, oh, and sure, a cigarette sure. Out his- he's the bad 
The bad boy. He's the bad boy, but a good cop. And he barges into the pet shop and he's on the trail of drugs. He thinks that Count D, the pet shop is a front for a drug selling business. Yeah. What ends up happening is there are a string of deaths, accidental deaths or and or disappearances and or murders or whatever. Leon, being a good detective, pieces together that every single one of these victims didn't have anything in common, really, except they were all patrons of Count D's pet shop. Mm -hmm. One thing that I noticed in the anime, which I'm not sure is a reference to the film Chinatown at all, but they keep mentioning like Chinatown's kind of its own thing, man. You can't just go in there and question things. And that throws back to the Jack Nicholson, Roman Polanski Chinatown, where they're like, it's Chinatown, Jake. You can't, you know, it's its own world. It has its own set of rules. Yeah, exactly. So I'm wondering if that kind of ties in. But Leon is looking for a reason to go investigate Mm -hmm. Count D. And he does. He goes in at at some point. And so the story then unfolds kind of framed by Leon's investigation of Count D. And it kind of reminded me, just touching back to Vampire Princess Mew. Sure. But the dynamic um, between Leon and Count D reminded me a lot of Himiko and Mew in terms of not quite trusting. You know, you have this kind of otherworldly figure and then the person who's our view is trying to figure out what's going on. That's actually a very good point. Both Himiko and Leon, when faced with the mystical counterpart, Mm -hmm. are like, I don't believe you. I'm going to try to thwart you and or stop you and or break you down. Like Leon just flat out doesn't believe in the supernatural at all. So Mm -hmm. at least Himiko believed in the supernatural, but she was like, but you don't make any sense. But Leon is very much, you sold someone a mermaid? That's hogwash. What are you really up to, County? Where are the drugs? Yeah, clearly this is a child prostitution ring, whatever. I love Leon. (laughs) He's he's, he's great. And then apparently he's quite a playboy as well. He is in the manga. He's got lots of lady friends and in the anime well we'll get to her but there's this character Jill at the police station yeah Jill who is a fan of Leon in my opinion she definitely wants to get to know him better but Leon is wrapped up in his work and completely unavailable but she is also very taken and this comes out over the course of the four episodes she's also very taken and very interested in Count D yeah and she is very intelligent and basically researches the heck out of everything and then gives Leon these tidbits of juice info that yep. lead, that give him reasons to go back to Count D. But I get the impression that Jill is kind of in favor of Count D. She's not against totally. him at all. Yeah. I, no, yeah. And I think she's very much encouraging of Leon and Count D's relationship as far as connections go. She sees the Count as a great contact in Chinatown and encourages... Right. Leon and gives Leon tips and tricks on how to win the Count's favor. Yeah, how to butter him up, yeah. basically. So back to Alice the rabbit. The, so the parents, of course, named their pet rabbit Alice. Of course. And at first, things are going well, but then, and stop me if I'm jumping too far ahead, Mason, Alice is sitting at the dinner table with them, and they feed her some vegetables, and she points to the cookie jar, and she's like, I want that. And the mother is like, oh, okay, you want some sweets? Great. And the father's like, no, 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 the contract says we can't. And she's like, just this once, it doesn't matter. At this point, they've had Alice for a day or maybe two. People are talking too. Yeah, the neighbors have noticed that as they walk by her house, they can hear her talking, quote, to Alice, quote. But of course, no one's seen her. So they're just like, oh, how sad that she named the rabbit Alice. And I heard Alice died in such a horrible way, dot, dot, dot. At this point, they've had Alice for a couple days. And she has not only begun acting more like their daughter, but she has also 
also started speaking. She can speak. Mommy, daddy. Yeah, saying mama, dad, daddy. And the mom is just beside herself. Oh my God, you've come back to us. This is a miracle. You've you've reincarnated somehow. So at that point, when she turns to the cookie, the mom is, oh, let's just, just this once, give her what she wants. Mm -hmm. So Leon actually goes to investigate more deeply on what happened to Alice. He sees them coming out of the pet shop with something. He doesn't know what it is. And he's like, oh, I bet, I bet it's drugs. So he follows them home and then he's waiting outside the house and he hears the gossipy neighbors, women talking. And he's like, oh, what's this? Their daughter died? Explain. He like pulls them over. He's like, I'm a cop. Now what? What were you saying? I got please, a mullet to prove it. Yeah, please don't stop talking. And I thought that was hilarious. So he finds out that their daughter died. She was yes, a, as an adult woman. So initially, you thought you think Alice is a is a girl, a little girl who died, but really, Alice is a woman in her twenties. Oh, I didn't get that. Yeah, I thought she was a teen daughter. I knew she was a rich kid. Mm-hmm. Like the well, the parents are very very well off, and she's kind of this Lindsay Lohan type. Well, I think, you know, they show the the image of her after her drug use. She's emaciated. Don't do drugs, kids. Don't do drugs. Um, Winners don't do drugs. I think the age she actually died at is far older than the age she was implying, whether it's in her 20s or her late teens. That's unclear. She ran away from home, got addicted to drugs, and then was in the hospital. And they show this key scene where she asks her parents for some relief. I'm, I'm in withdrawal. I can't take it. Yeah, this Can is... Just please give me This drugs. is the big the big twist. The mm-hmm. big reveal is that the mother uh, was at the hospital with the daughter. And the daughter was... I guess at that point she was addicted to mm-hmm. heroin or something. Mm-hmm. But she was... I just want a little bit more. Just this once. Mm-hmm. You know, type thing. And the mother's like, okay, just this once. And that's what ended up killing her. Yeah, the mom doses her in the hospital bed and surprise, she didn't make it. (laughs) But I think that the point of each of these stories, each pet is designed to teach the owner a lesson about the wrongs that they've done. It's like each episode's a morality play. A little bit, which I'm a huge fan of, of course. They don't deal with as deep issues as Miyu, but it's definitely on there. But what I found interesting too, rewatching this series after several years and now having lived in LA for a few years, (laughs) This show is so much about the vices that come from living in a city like Los Angeles or being involved in the entertainment industry. Like so many of these stories all deal with people dealing with addiction, people dealing with fame, people dealing with wanting power. These vices that are often associated with Los Angeles are examined in this series. That's very true. And I hadn't caught that. So once again, you elucidate me with your awesomeness. Deep moments with (laughs) Sarah Puzzle. Hashtag. But starting off this kind of Lindsay Lohan type who got addicted to drugs and died. So Leon, after uncovering all this, goes to the house to confront them. And Count D is already at the door. Right. Oh, with his little friend T-Chan on his shoulder. Uh, now I Q- want- Q-Chan. Q-Chan. Yeah. Oh, Q-Chan. That's right, Q-Chan. Sorry, there's a T-Chan in the manga who's yeah. like Q-Chan's friend. So Q-Chan, who again is- <laughs> <laughs> He's not actually named in the anime. I don't think they ever no, they never, introduce him. They like, never talk about him. He just flies around. But what, He's Count D's little buddy. He's like the choo-choo. Like Utena had choo-choo. Yeah. Ash had Pikachu. And it, it pretty much... Q-chan. Yeah, it pretty much looks kind of like a little Pikachu with bat wings. Yeah. That's the one thing that really tripped me out. Leon confronts Count D at, at one point and he's like, you sell drugs. You do all this really bad stuff and I'm on to you, man. I'm on to you. And Count D is like, no. I sell fantasy creatures. And Leon is like, I don't believe you at all. And then, you know, in is this little Pikachu with bat wings that flies around. And he's like, whatever, man, you're lying. 
I never thought of that before. And I was, That's so true. I just was like, what are you just going to say that the bath thing isn't real, Leon? <laughs> anyway, whatever. We well, live in an alternate universe where there are many Q-chons across the Los right, Angeles landscape. Exactly. They got free and then multiplied somewhere. That would be hilarious. And not... Uh, like the ringneck uh, parrots in Glendale. I don't know about these. Yeah. Well, just tangent. Years ago, like decades ago, uh, some like pet birds escaped Indian ringneck parrots. Okay. And now they're wild flocks living in Glendale and Burbank. No way. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. Well, I guess as long as our ecosystem isn't totally destroyed. Yeah. Interesting. But so, speaking of breeding out of control. <laughs> so Count D is at the door and he's come and Leon's like, what are you doing here? And Count D essentially says, oh, I've come to collect the rabbit I sold them because I suspect that they've breached the terms of the contract. Here's the contract if you want to see it, by the way. Right. So this is how Count D kind of always evades any kind of legal prosecution. The people who buy things from him always sign a contract agreeing to the agreeing three to certain terms. terms. And the specific clause that keeps him safe is that if the buyer violates any one of these mm-hmm. clauses, the pet shop essentially disavows all responsibility. Yep. Ironclad. God. <laughs> yes. So they open the door and there's this smell of incense. We should mention at this point that she did give her the cookie. She oh, gave, lots of cookies. Lots of cookies. She gave her just one and then there's Alice, a shot. Alice wanted more and she just gave her the whole box. Yeah. And, yeah. and there's a shot of Alice in her room like she's yeah. going to town on a bunch of yeah, like sweets. Eating, eating like a rabbit. That kind of thing. and uh, But it's really creepy. It's very creepy. And then she turns around in this horrifying reveal, and she looks freaky, man. She looks really scary. I just want to say the art in this show is phenomenal, and the manga. The art is beautiful, and it's so horrifying at times. Yes, the art is very beautiful. It's a different style. It's not the style that I'm used to, but it's very beautiful and very freaky. And the manga in particular, you can tell that the artist just went to town man like just, her line work is yeah, gorgeous shading the the penciling it's it's unbelievable the amount of detail that she goes into it's crazy crazy awesome <laughs> i want to talk a little bit about the incense because that's a reason perhaps why people see certain things in the pet shop but count d says oh no this incense is just to mask the, the smell odor. yeah when they go in his pet shop doesn't there's many different animals but apparently it doesn't smell like a pet shop it doesn't smell like animals and there is definitely something special about the incense yeah. because a lot of people remark on it and they draw it all the time the haziness Right, right. And they never let it go out. So Leon looks and sees lots of little girls, lots of little Alice's, babies. Babies. not Lots of human babies. Yeah, not little girls. And shakes his head and they take a second look and it's all rabbits. Yeah, and when we say lots. Hundreds. The room is filled. The staircase is filled. Apparently they live in a mansion. They have like a double prong yeah, staircase. Yeah, no, the, the parents were super, super rich. rich. Jinx. Rabbits up the wazoo and new rabbits are continually being born, but they're not being born in the traditional way. They are born by eating through their mother's flesh. And they also, like, they're born pregnant. It's um, an asexual reproduction. Yeah, like, like a triple, basically. <laughs> like gremlins. Well, gremlins reproduce via water, right? Via water, and they don't kill their father or mother. Right, they just kind of like pop Pop off. out. Yeah, but yeah, the rabbit will eat, and then whatever it eats, I guess feeds the unborn babies. And then if their hunger gets really rampant, they will eat through the parent. Mm -hmm. And so each parent kicks out about eight rabbits who are then already pregnant with eight more rabbits. Yeah. Leon shoots his gun, the rabbits see kind of parts, and you see the father who's dead and been basically pecked to death. They ate the father to death. (laughs) 
<laughs> eaten to death. Oh, it'd be a terrible way to die. It's, it's a bad way to go. Oh. Hundreds of rabbits devouring your flesh is, is not a way to go. So they make their way through the rabbits upstairs, and the mother is alone in a room just absolutely beside herself. Yeah, she's crying because Alice has died yet again in mm. front of her, mm-hmm. basically. County is like, now here's your lesson, lady. <laughs> like, yeah. By the way, I know I know that this occurred somehow because he's supernatural county. He's mm-hmm. like, this is what happened in the hospital, and I gave you this pet to show you that you can't just give your child everything they want. But you did, and now you're you're losing everything again. And the rabbits all descend on the mother and tear her apart. And Count D some, says something to the effect of, the deep love of the mother imposes the sin of matricide on the child. Oh, that's heavy. I, yeah. didn't, I didn't catch that one. Deep moments with Sarah. So it, it's interesting to think about that and the visual of the rabbits being born by eating through their mother's womb. Yeah, horrifying visual, by the way. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, the rabbits all drop dead. And Leon's like, why are they all dying? And County's like, the poison finally took effect. The poison being the sugar that Alice Prime had consumed. Yeah, yeah, that was the whole thing. Leon realizes that left unchecked, the the rabbits will exponentially reproduce and take over the planet. Coincidentally, quote unquote, after the mother is eaten to death, all the rabbits start dying. In a similar way, I took it that chocolate is horrible for dogs. Mm. Sugar, in some way, is terrible for these rabbits, and they all started dying. Mm-hmm. They go back to the pet shop. Leon's following Count D, and Leon asks D, "You knew this would happen, didn't you?" kind of finally understanding the extent of what he's dealing with, with the Count. And the Count's like, well, why don't you come in and talk about it? I have a great chocolate cream pie we can eat with some tea. <laughs> like, yeah. So it's funny to me that, you know, the irony of sugar is poison. Come in, let's have some sweets. Yeah, and it, so Count D subsists almost entirely on tea, which apparently is this like super high grade tea and sugar. And he, he loves has a, sweets. Yeah, he has a very refined palate for sweets and Jill figures this out and tells Leon if you want to work with Count E or get him to be on your side give him some pastries ply him with sugar yeah and so Leon takes that to the next level but that was pretty much episode one yeah it was interesting I, it was a good way to get introduced to everything I thought it's creepy but not horrifying the visuals were intense but not out of control I, I don't know I was I was I, I liked it and I liked the dramatic aspect of it and the question that it raised and County is a very mysterious figure and Leon is this kind of driven cop and you know they, they were interesting characters yeah and I know that for me I found myself questioning and this question only deepened as the show goes on like what does Count D get out of his morality play essentially because he's basically schooling people on this is what you need to look at in your life does he take pleasure in it I wonder or is it something that it's his duty yeah is that's, he sat like you know that's an excellent question of course I'm, I'm influenced by the manga because I read a little bit of the manga and it, in the manga they kind of go a lot more into County's backstory oh yeah he is the last of his race, which is not human, and it, it's more animal or whatever, but he was thwarted by humans. An emperor of China at one point asked one of the animal people for their hand in marriage, but the girl refused him. And so the emperor slaughtered all of them. Gen- mm. Genocide. And then Count D is a descendant of the one that got away. Mm-hmm. So that's probably it. He enjoys watching misfortune being wreaked upon humans from their own stupidity or actions as a form of vengeance. 
intelligence. Yeah. And it's interesting his relationship with humans and how, like his relationship with his other customers, how that contrasts to his relationship with Leon. You know, he's got this sweetness with Leon. Yeah. It's very clear that he likes Leon. Mm -hmm. He likes Leon as a person. And I think he enjoys the game of Leon trying to catch him. Yeah. And then him just kind of being like, oh no, it's contract. You can't touch me, man. Mm -hmm. But you know, hey. I like I like hanging with you because they do they they kind of have these discussions about the human condition. Yeah, they respect each other eventually. Eventually, in the beginning, it's it's very ad- adversarial. Well, I guess same For, with Himiko mm-hmm. and, and Miu. All right, so moving on to episode two, delicious. Yeah, one thing I did notice that all the episodes start with D. Is that a little haha towards Kelly? Yeah, D? totally. Okay, gotcha. So yeah, talk to us about episode two, Delicious. Delicious. Delicious is a murder mystery at sea. Or is it? That's how the episode starts. We have this beautiful haunting song. We have a piercing scream, a woman in a wedding dress falling off of a boat and shocked onlookers. A male and a female shocked Mm -hmm. onlookers. And that's how the episode opens. And it is very jarring and awesome for its creep factor. Because to me, there's very few images less creepy than a woman in a long veil falling, possibly hanging herself. You know, you're not sure what's going on. Was she pushed? Is it suicide? It's very, very strange. I was immediately taken in and it reminded me a lot of Hitchcock, Mm. a very Hitchcock moment. I was immediately, I was like, all right, let's, let's check this out. Let's figure this out. I was very pleased about it. Mm. So we're then in the pet shop and Count D is visited by Jason Gray, who has come to pick up a pet that his late wife had ordered. Yeah. So he's essentially the widow of the bride that fell off the boat. Yeah. And so Count D takes him into the back room and shows him what is essentially a giant fish. He's like, well, I'll I'll take a look at it and see if I want it. He's like, I think you're going to want it. So they go in the back and it's this giant urn, which Mm -hmm. is fascinating. But going up to the lip of it, Jason looks looks in and it's a mermaid. And it looks exactly like his late wife, Evangeline Blue. Yes. Ava. Who was a record- Rock record star. Pop star. Mm-hmm. And uh, Jason was her manager, as, as well as her newfound husband. And Count D says something like, you know, you know, legend has it that mermaids often disguise themselves as human. And then when they go back to the sea, they regain their mermaid form. So maybe your Ava was actually a mermaid who was human for a time. And this is her. Yeah. And coincidentally has lost her human memories. But if you take care of her, if she really was in love with you, she may recover her memories. Mm -hmm. And so the fact that she looks exactly like his ex-wife, Jason, is just, yes, I'll, I'll do it. I'll do anything for her. I'll do anything to be reunited with her. He is, of course, presented with the contract. The contract. Three terms. First, of course, don't show her to anyone. Of course. Second, keep her in a large tank filled with seawater. And three, never let her go hungry. Yeah, feed her whatever she wants all the time. Mm-hmm. In contrast to Alice. Mm-hmm. So, so he, we can only, we can already kind of see where this is headed, can't we? I actually couldn't. And huh. I was like, I wonder where this is going. So Leon is dispatched because he notices that Jason was a, a customer of County and also that his bride died under mysterious circumstances. So he immediately is, all right, I'm going to go talk to County 
about this and see what's going on. In the meantime, Jason takes the mermaid home, converts his pool into a saltwater pool, and just hangs out in the pool house with this mermaid kind of swimming around. And he's like, yeah, you know, I'll feed you anything you want. And he's giving her the fish heads. And he's clearly just becoming more and more infatuated. And then I think we jump to the county shop. Right? Yeah. So Leon goes to confront Count D. After having the suggestion, Jill says, you know what? He really likes those fruit tarts. You might, you know, want to pick one up for him. And so he presents D with a fruit tart. <laughs> this is the first time in the series where the comedy really gets let out, the banter between them. And what I love about their dynamic is Leon is so aggressive and D is just dodging him with his passivity. He's very calm under stress. And that's where a lot of the humor comes from. Yeah. And it's also very much a male trying to dominate a wily female, if you will. The Count D is, is this very feminine, kind of wily dodging. And whereas Leon, I took to be kind of a very brash male. Yeah. Yeah. I can, the yin and the yang is yes. what I think of. Fair when enough. With their relationship. Totally. The yeah. yin and yang is what makes, where a lot of the comedy it comes out of too. Then. County's talking to Leon and Leon's like, what did you sell, Jason? County is surprisingly forthright and is just, I sold him a mermaid. That's right. <laughs> and Leon's like, no way. You and your games. I'm not going to believe you at all. And he's like, no, I mean, here's the contract. Check it out. Saltwater, large. Mm-hmm. feed it whatever you know don't let anyone see it and Leon is still just no I don't believe you or whatever and so he goes back to his his chief of police and he's like listen I think Jason murdered his wife and the chief of police is like, there's no evidence for that. There's no reason for it. Leon is like, I'll find it. So he's like, all right, we'll go talk to their assistant. Like Louise. Jason Jason had, a, had an assistant named Louise Tessin. And she was actually Ava's dresser. And she was the woman who in the beginning, in that horrific shot at the top of the show, that one of the onlookers. Right. So in the beginning, you're not sure if she fell or was pushed or what. And then Leon interviews Jason and Louise. They were like, oh, no, she fell. She she slipped. And then, yes, as the investigation deepens, you find that Jason and Louise had a relationship that before Ava showed up, they were together. Yeah, they were lovers. That's all Louise really tells him at this point. Meanwhile, Jason is becoming more and more lost in his time with the mermaid slash fish. He's sitting by the pool. He's playing Evangeline's records on loop. He's getting into the pool with the fish. He's just clearly kind of lost. Yeah. He's lost himself. I think this is because for those of you who are up on your mermaid folklore, the mermaids, originally what they do, they they were kind of a cross between mermaids and sirens and they would hop up on rocks and sing and the fishermen would be so enchanted with their voices that they would hurl themselves off the ships to go be with the mermaids who would then eat them. Mm -hmm. And so this mermaid clearly follows in those footsteps. So she starts singing to Jason because she's happy and her voice is exactly Evangeline Blue's voice. So Jason is like, Ava, you're back. You remember me. Yeah. He starts playing the records when she stops singing. But when she does sing, he stops the records and starts going into the water to be with her. He's having sex with the fish. I don't think they got that far. I think it's pretty heavily implied because she has her hand down his nether region shirt at one point. And I think... (laughs) No, that's true. So I think he's straight up having sex with this fish. I'm going to disagree because while I will agree that she's clearly doing something something from behind kind of a reach around thing (laughs) and while I think that she's clearly is doing something he's more entranced with just her presence and then I think she starts 
feeding on him. She starts licking, licking him, his, licking his blood. Mm-hmm. To be fair, so I don't think they got as far as sex. I think it was at most kind of a, a reach around hand job. I and- thought for me the most terrific implication, which is what I think they were going for, was that he was engaging in some kind of sexual activity with the fish. Some kind, yes, and you and know, happily, happily, willingly, and it's underscored by Luis after being questioned by the police goes to Jason concerned. And she's like, Jason, they're asking about what's happening. You know, I need to talk to you. I need to see you. And he opens the door and is essentially like, I realize now who I really love. I love Ava. I'm going to be with her forever. I would gladly give my life for her. So she realizes, oh my God, the guy I love is lost to this fish. Yeah. Somehow she knows about the fish. I can't remember how, but she's, oh, this is so weird. He's locked himself in the pool house and he's not coming out. And then now he's talking about love being with this other fish. And she's like, something's something's wrong. So she goes back to the police. And there she tells Leon the whole truth that after, so Jason gets married to Ava and after the wedding, Jason tells Luis, you're the one I love. This marriage is a sham. Ava just wants me because she always gets what she wants and this is part of it. But I really love you. Yeah, and I'm basically gonna divorce her and take half and we're gonna be set. And Ava, of course, overhears all this and then throws herself off the ship kind of in a dramatic fashion, essentially commits suicide. Yeah, realizing that the man she loves doesn't really love her. She kind of freaks out and throws herself off the ship. And then as she's falling, Jason realizes, oh man, she loved me so much. Yeah. That was the wrong play, man. So he's consumed with his regret. His grief and his guilt over feeling responsible for her death. Yes. When he gets this mermaid, it's a chance of redemption in his mind, basically. Mm-hmm. And he, he goes. And, and that's why, I guess, in his trance-like state, he does forget to feed her. And yes. So she, in true mermaid fashion, begins to feast upon him. And he's like, yes. This is know, right. You forgive me. So Leon, hearing this whole confession from Louise about what really happened, goes to the Count and says, what did you sell him? I know that like something's you, you messed up here. did sell him something. And Count D essentially says you might want to go check on him because I imagine that he's probably forgotten to feed her. And so it's so interesting how D is so helpful, but in a sinister way. Well, yeah, I think once he realizes that the rules have been broken and that the pet shop cannot be held responsible in any way, shape or form anymore, then he's like, yeah, I'll help you out, Leon. Sure. And it's also like he's, he loves to manipulate humans. I definitely got the vibe that he was like, humanity is my plaything, and I enjoy Enjoy watching them squirm and struggle, and which kind of ties into, I guess, his backstory. And pets. Humanity is my pet. Yeah, kind of. That's interesting. So everybody runs over to Jason's house, right? And of course, it's too late. Nobody answers the door. They go into the pool house, and they find bits of Jason's body floating in the pool, and other bits have been consumed yeah, by he- this giant friggin' fish. Right. When they see it, it's a giant fish. So it's not a mermaid at all. The big twist, the big reveal is that... Throughout this entire thing, they have not found the body of Evangeline Blue. Their police are looking, they haven't found it. So that kind of lends credence. The mermaid could in fact be Evangeline Blue. And then I guess they capture the fish and dissect it. But inside of it, they find not only Jason's body, but also parts, I think it's the legs of Evangeline Blue. So the same fish ate both wife and husband. Maybe. I took it to mean something else. That's what happened. I mean, the fish, Evangeline jumped into the ocean, the fish ate her, and then that same fish ate him. What did you... I think something else happened. I think, because I love 
fantasy that Evangeline was a mermaid who came on land, fell in love, became a singer, then realized the man she loved was a lie and was like, I want to forget everything. So she jumped off the ship, became a mermaid again, forgot everything. And essentially when she turned back into a mermaid, her legs were absorbed into her. So she became this fish thing again. And then she did. She came back and saw Jason again and he took care of her or whatever, but he didn't feed her. So she did eat him. So she had her legs inside of her and then also ate Jason. That is fascinating. It's equally plausible. It's No, it's totally plausible because it would then mean that Count D was telling the truth from the start that some mermaids turn human for a time and then they return to the sea. And it would also make sense because Count D says that Ava called in the order for the fish before she died. That's right. So I don't think that actually happened. I think that maybe when the fish came to the count, the fish told him the story. Maybe. I don't know. It's very mysterious. The other thing is she could have taken a risk and been like, I'll phone in the fish and then I'm going to go jump off. And they were getting married at sea. Yeah. They got married on a ship at sea. My mind is blown. Boom. See, this is why it's so great to watch. Even if you've seen Pet Shop of Horrors multiple times over the years, to talk about it with someone who's a new viewer to it. Like it just... You never know your preconceived notions about what happened totally change. Yeah, you take uh, you take new viewpoints. That's I, awesome. I, I will say it's definitely worth watching. It's worth checking out. So we're going into episode three. Despair. I love this episode. Me too. I thought it was really interesting. I have one question for you before we begin. Yeah. Is this a veiled commentary on Mark Hamill? Oh, 100%. Okay. 100%. Not Mark Hamill literally, I don't think, because... Okay, I was wondering. I'm sorry, but Mark Hamill to me is the success story of Star Wars, in my humble opinion. Harrison Ford? I mean... If you want the whole movie star thing, sure, Harrison Ford's fine, I guess. But Mark Hamill's a friggin' comic book author. He's a friggin' the Joker in Batman Batman the Animated Animated Series series. and video games. Like, to me, he is killing it. And he's also an amazing theater star. He's done a lot of really cool theater. He has a really great family. Like, to me, Mark Hamill is killing it. His level of success is no less or greater than some of his other counterparts in those films. I'm a huge Mark Hamill fan. I mean, I'm I'm a huge Mark Hamill fan too. For those of you who don't know, Mark Hamill played Luke Skywalker in the original Star Wars trilogy. And at the end of Star Wars, between shooting for Empire Strikes Back, he got into a motorcycle accident, which damaged his face. He did not look the same. If for some reason you ever see the Star Wars Christmas special, which I never recommend, (laughs) um, you will see a very, very, very beautiful Mark Hamill. He is just this glorious specimen of manhood. And then he got into a motorcycle accident and wrecked his face. They cover that up in Empire Strikes Back by having a wampa attack him. In the beginning of the movie, his his face is completely covered because they're on Hoth in the ice. And then all of a sudden a wampa attacks him. So then his face is, quote, scarred. And a lot of people were like, oh man, Mark Hamill, you don't look the same anymore. I mean, he finished out Star Wars, of course. But after that, it was hard to get some roles. You really think that affected him that much, though? Like his, his face? In the 80s? Oh, yeah. Oh. oh, yeah. But what happened was he started doing voice work for Lucas in all of the Lucasfilm games, killing it. And then, yeah, his big break was Joker in the Batman the Animated Series. And he slayed it. He my owned favorite, it. My favorite rendition yeah. of any of the Jokers, Abs- live, live action or otherwise. Absolutely. He owned it. Owned it. And became iconic in the same way that 
Kevin Conroy is Batman from the animated series. And Mark Hamill now is the animated Joker. There is no other voices. And I hear that the DC Showcase is now going to do an animated adaptation of The Killing Joke. And Mark Hamill is slated to be the voice and Kevin Conroy is going to be Batman. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I think. That'll be so great. Everybody can't wait for that. Anyway. Yes, Robin Hendricks. Robin Hendricks is definitely meant to be a Luke Skywalker type figure. Yeah, that's what I figured. He was the star of Space Wars is what it's called. Yeah, and the poster is kind of eerily similar to Star Wars. Yeah. A little bit. So Despair opens on the dead body of... Robin Hendricks, who was the young star of the Space Wars movies, but then couldn't really get a job afterward. And so the police scene is his dead body, and they lift up a sheet, and there's a dead lizard sitting on his neck. This kind of weird albino lizard. And they're all like, oh, what's this? Oh, you know, never seen anything like it. And so Leon is like, hmm. A lizard? I know who to ask about this. So he heads on over, and he brings with him A some- very delicate hard to get pastry of some sort. This is one of my favorite moments in the series, but it also creeps me out a little bit. Okay. When Leon presents D with this pastry, County freaks out and his freak out is epic. He gets all giddy and happy and his face that's always usually so calm and controlled contorts to just sheer bliss and hysteria because he's like, wow, you you know, they only make 30 of these a day and you have to stand in line before the shop opens to get this, this particular pastry. Wow, you really do care. Yeah, yeah. It's definitely the most human that we've ever seen him act. Yes. And I do wonder, who got that pastry? Because I don't think it was Leon. I don't think Leon would have the patience to stand in line. I think it was Jill. Yeah, I'm going with Jill. (laughs) So she went and did this thing for him, and he's getting all the credit. But I just want to give credit where credit's due, man. Yeah, Jill. Jill and her... Super short miniskirt and her super super low cut top. Yeah, I mean she's you know she's she's got some stuff going on there, and I don't really understand why Leon's not more all about that. But he's all about the count. Well. Uh, among other things, I suppose. <laughs> I mean, he's definitely fixated. So the cool thing to me about this episode is that from this point on, it's told entirely in flashbacks. So what's actually happening is just Leon and Dee are having a conversation and Dee recounts what happened to Robin. So I thought that was an interesting way to frame the episode. It's a frame story. They talk about the theory of what happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, and of course, whatever their theory is, is what happened. But they're framing it in, oh, well, I, I would guess this happened and then that would mean that this led to this. and Yeah. What we end up finding out. Robin Hendricks. Uh, His wife had recently left him, so he was living alone in his house. And he was kind of in trouble financially, career-wise. So the one thing in his life that gives him pleasure are his pet lizards. And snakes. And snakes. Yeah, reptiles. 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 He's really into pet reptiles. Yeah. So he goes into County's pet shop one day to get another one for his collection. And there's this really cool moment. And the sound design of this moment is cool too. Robin stares at this lizard and the lizard's eyes move. And the music is like this piano tinkling that kind of follows the movements of the lizard's eyes. And Count D sees Robin looking at the lizard, and you can kind of see him make the decision, you know, I have something special in the back room that just arrived. Do you want to see it? I'll open the secret door to you. Yeah, like make the decision that, okay, now it's time. Now he needs this special pet, which I found really interesting. Because his wife has left him, he's in the depths of despair. Yeah. They kind of imply, as the show goes on, that Robin prefers reptiles to humans. 
because, you know, having achieved such success and fame at a young age as the star of the Space Wars franchise, people don't see him as a human. They only see him as Robin Hendricks, the star. So his interactions with actual humans is very demanding. They want something from him. Whereas his interaction with lizards and reptiles, it's more honest and authentic to him. The pets just need him to love and care for them. They don't need other things from him. They're more honest. They're more honest. They love him for him. And so Count D shows him a lizard, quote unquote, which looks like a woman. And her hair is done in such a way that it looks like one of these women in Star Wars. I don't know the species name. The Twilight. Is that what they are? Yeah, the green tentacle girl. And Jabba kills one. Yeah, Ula. Yeah. Una, I'm sorry. Una, yeah. So this woman totally looks like she's of the space series that he was involved in. I actually took it to be more of a Chinese empress headdress type thing. I definitely, I see what you're saying for sure. But I don't know if you've ever watched Chinese period drama. They have these elaborate headdresses that are very similar where they do the hair up with these combs and these fans and stuff. And and it's in style like that. Cool. And I think that imperial royal element to her is definitely implied for what she ends up being a representation of. Sure. So Count D sells him the pet lizard with three rules of the contract. One, she's got a blindfold on. And so the blindfold always has to stay on, never look directly into her eyes. Two, always give her fresh fruits and vegetables. Three, don't show her to anyone. Yeah, of course. So It's worth mentioning that she's identified as a Medusa. Mm-hmm. So if anyone's up your Greek mythology, Medusa was a Gorgon who had a woman top, although her hair was made of snakes. And then from the waist down, she was a snake, mm-hmm. a lizard. So it wasn't a lizard at all. But it's a pet lizard that's dead on his Yeah, no, you're right. I'm just pointing out this inane inconsistency. Oh, <laughs> Got it. He agrees to the contract, eagerly takes her home, and essentially kind of similar to what happened to the Jason character in episode two, he spends time with the lizard and kind of falls in love with her a little bit. Like he even says, all she wants from me is for me to love and take care of her. Right. She, she doesn't see me. She can't She can't base her judgment of me on how I look. She loves me for me. And Dee will only let him have her if she is willing to do it. So if the pet and the owner aren't a good match, I won't allow it. But if she chooses you, because at some point she smiled and D is like, oh, she's chosen you. You can Aww. you can take her. And then Jason goes and like holds her hand or something. And he's like, oh, this skin, it's so smooth and <laughs> flawless. This is the type of skin that I dug, which I assume is reptile skin. So yeah, he loves it. He loves that it's cold blooded and he can hold it. And I don't, I don't know, whatever. He's, he's into it. All those years filming Space Wars in the desert, you know, he just right. bonded with reptiles. I guess. He's overjoyed. He takes her home and she's apparently very happy and they yeah. have romantic uh, candlelight evenings together where they just hang out and who knows. That's now so see, nice. that one, if you want to argue that there was some sex going on, <laughs> I would I would be way more encouraged to, to agree that. with that one. So Count D is telling all this to Leon and Leon at one point gets really hot-headed about something and Count D is like, you know what? You could really benefit from maybe taking that sparrow. Points to a little sparrow in the pet shop. And Leon's like, I don't want a pet. Right. And Count D's like, no, not as a pet. I'm suggest I'm suggesting you grind it and eat its bones. Yeah. You know, you, you're so irritable, you might have a calcium deficiency. <laughs> and I love that's one of my favorite lines. First of all, the way it's drawn, Count D looks like he's just got this S-eating grin on his face. Yeah, yeah. It also highlights to me a major theme of this show is East versus West in terms 
terms of philosophies. Mm. So you have Count D representing like the knowledge and the ancient sort of secrets of the East that are come into conflict with Western realism and all these vices that are being dealt with in LA, the modern human condition in the Western world. And, And that's really exhibited in the character's relationship too, is you have East meets West, you know, this Eastern medicine, you know, grind the sparrow and eat it and you'll feel better. And Leon, of course, being like, whoa, dude, you're weird. And that's very interesting that you say that because a lot of people say that about Star Wars, that it's essentially an East meets West, Eastern philosophy meets Western. Yeah. That is, wow, cool. Oh, yeah. The Force is basically yin and yang and the light side, dark side of the Force. Totally. And and Eastern philosophies of it's always within you and, and basically manipulating key energy. And, you know, it's a way to introduce it all to the Western audiences. A lot of people are down with that. Oh, that's super cool. But that is an interesting point about the Sparrow because you mentioned to me, and I did not get that far, so I didn't know, but you said the county actually does give him pets in the manga. At two points in the manga, he gives him a butterfly at one point and he gives him a plant of some sort. But these pets aren't harmful to Leon. They help Leon. They give him a lesson on something, but it's usually Leon remembering something from his past that then helps him. They're not malevolent. Exactly. And it, it represents how Count D feels toward Leon. I think Count D really respects Leon because Leon is totally pure hearted. Well, assuming you overlook the womanizing. Thing. Oh, yeah, just overlook the womanizing. Okay. Is he a womanizer or does he just love going out? Uh, <laughs> I'm I mean, sure lots of guys out there are like, oh, no, I respect women. I just love going out with lots of them. In the anime, he doesn't actually date anyone, but I'm given to understand that in the manga, he's got a different woman every issue or on his arm all the time. <laughs> Well, and, and Jill is just kind of waiting in the wings, of course. Well, I can't speak to that. But, okay. okay. Um, <laughs> I think D respects Leon and sees him as someone who's at least always in pursuit of the truth. And that to count D is a noble thing rather than someone deluding themselves with these fantasies and vices. Oh, I could see that, especially given LA. Sure. LA is kind of a city of, of the flesh. Mm-hmm. Like if you ever want to indulge in any type of vice, this is the place that it can happen. Podcasts. Sure. Anime, comics. Yeah. It's or, all here. Or other stuff. <laughs> I agree. I think he respects Leon and I think he wants to be Leon's friend, which is interesting because D normally shows disdain for humans, but Leon he takes exception to. And I think you're right. It's because he is pure hearted and yeah. honest. Honest, totally. So D reveals to Leon that Robin had an audition a few weeks prior. He got a call from his agent. It's time for us to get back on top. I've yeah. set up. I've set up an audition for you. The most ridiculous audition in the world, might I add. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll, I'll be interested in getting your opinion on that. This is right after he first got the Medusa. So Robin is feeling better. He's more yeah. uplifted. He's kind of in love again. And he's, yeah, man, let's do it. Let's rock. And his agent says something to the extent of, if you don't book this, we might have to drop you. So come on, go do this audition. Right. Kind of do or die time. So Robin goes into the audition. He does really well. He does so well that he's put on the short list for the final round and his manager or agent is like the only competition you really have is that guy right. Toby Hyman yeah <laughs> that's his name they're basically like screen tests apparently like they're all sweaty because of the lights or whatever but yeah they, I'm like are you are you guys doing a dance routine yeah, they, why are there so many of you just hanging around yeah they look like they're at a ballet dance 
studio because they've got the towel around the neck yeah. and they're, they're all in sleeveless leotards. Maybe that's what I'll do in my next audition. I'll yeah. Just rock the sleeveless leotard, bring a towel. Oh man, I bet you'd get the <laughs> role. But um, so I wasn't really clear on what exactly the audition was. Yeah, they don't show us any of the actual acting. They just show us the aftermath of the audition. Well, is that what made it so crazy for you was just the towel? The towel, lots of people standing around and watching who were also going up for the part, the group oh, nature of it. It seemed right. like it was a theater audition when a film audition, I don't think would be right. run that no, way. No, you're ever. right. Theater audition, everyone just kind of sits in the audience and checks it out and whatever film, you're usually called into a room very isolated and it's yeah. just you and the director and maybe like the casting people. That's it. So it's just funny. As an actor, I yeah. just find that stuff funny because it's like how the writer envisions an audition yeah, in no. LA would be. But what's important to note is he is rocking it and yeah. everyone is just, oh man, Robin, this is your comeback. This is it. You're so good. And yeah. apparently he has really been just through the roof in it. The entertainment industry there is, it's differently tiered than out here. Right. I feel like you have to be much more of a triple threat quadruple threat well they want you to be Robin does not end up getting the part and we see him walking out to his agent's car for some BS machination reasons by the way yeah he looks like he has no expression but you can tell he's disheartened and his manager is like hey this is great this means you're you're back in the game you proved that you're a heck of an actor and Robin's like no it's taught me that I'm not cut out for this his agent also tells him why he didn't get the part why because Toby is sleeping with the producer that's right that's right (laughs) That's why There's I was like some, some BS machinations. Yes, like, I remember. The implication is that Robin actually did sweep the audition. Yeah, but it's all the more heartbreaking. It's the height of unfair. I, I don't really understand this, but Robin just is like, you know what? I gave it my best shot and I'm quitting. He was hanging his whole hat on this one. Yeah. Wow, I think I just invented a metaphor. Nice. He was pinning all his nice. hopes and dreams. He was going to financial ruin too because it was revealed too his wife was financially supporting him. Oh, I didn't space catch that. Wars, yeah, the Space Wars residuals weren't cutting it. Well, I, I knew the residuals were, were fading. He was using this audition as a litmus test. Do I still have it? Yeah, if I get it, then I know I'm in it to win it. But if I don't get this one, then I know that it's not meant to be. Which is a terrible view to have in yeah. practical life. Especially, a lot of times, you never know why you didn't get the part. But here's this thing where his agent is like, no, you rocked it. Here's the reason you didn't get it. It was something completely beyond your control yeah. that I didn't even know about. You should still hang in there, man. You rocked it. Everyone saw you. But instead, he's just like, nah. Well, he's severely depressed. I mean, of course, I understand that. (laughs) So Robin goes back to his home and he pours wine for Medusa and himself. Yeah, very romantic moment. Yeah, it feels very Shakespearean. This idea of what is essentially going to be a Romeo and Juliet style double suicide. Shinzu. Shinzu. So he takes off Medusa's blindfold and begs her to look at him. And at first she's scared and she she doesn't want to look at him because she knows something bad will happen. But he says, trust me, it's all right. I want you to look at me. She opens her eyes and looks at him and he falls to the floor. Well, he sees her for like one second. He's like, oh, and then it's over. It's the best second of his life. Yeah. What she then does, realizing the horror of what's just happened, she's killed her love. She, this is cool to note, some of Robin's ex-wife's makeup supplies are still in the apartment that she left behind and Robin has been putting makeup on the lizard and dressing her up. In her human form. In her human form. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Human, beautiful human woman form. So the lizard picks up the makeup compact he was using on her and she looks into the little mirror of the makeup compact and then she dies looking at her own eyes. And then reverts 
I guess, back to lizard form yeah. once she's dead. It's a very beautiful and poetic thing. Very Romeo and Juliet, like you said. But this is where I have a lot of issue. Because A, what we've just been talking about was that his agent was like, no kid, you've got it. And now a lot of people know you again and we're going to get you back out there. And here's the reason that you're not in this film and it was beyond your control. On top of that, at home, he's got his seemingly ideal female companion who is in fact madly in love with him and just waiting for him to come home and being like yeah let's rock it now i get that a he's depressed and b he's like oh man i don't have the money to support you anymore i'm gonna have to give you back and then he's like uh f it i'll just die but <laughs> wouldn't that just be more impetus to be like no you gotta take the bull by the horns and everything's great now like, i gotta do it but here's the final reason okay yeah, yeah no i'm curious count d and leon attend the funeral of Robin Hendricks and County has somehow gotten a hold of the body of Medusa and she has a little jar of lizard ashes yeah, yeah. that he intends to throw into the grave. Which was another thing because when she dies and turns back into a lizard, she fits in the palm of your hand. Yeah. But otherwise she was like a five foot eight. Like... <laughs> Smokestack. Yeah, yeah. Just saying. So Count D and Leon are at Robin Hendricks' funeral and Leon's like, what a waste, you know? It's basically what you're saying. Like, why yeah. did we do it? Yeah, and then rightly Ka- so. Anyway. <laughs> and Count D says, well, look around. And everybody at the funeral, like Hollywood's A-list are there and they're all murmuring, oh my gosh, he was so amazing. He was in his prime. Wow, like what what a loss, what a waste. He became a legend by dying young. He cemented himself as a Hollywood legend. And so I think he wanted to die in his prime. He wanted to die on top. Was that a veiled reference to James Dean? 100%. 100%. All right. Yeah, live fast and leave a beautiful corpse. Think about all these iconic people who died in their late 20s. 20s, Kurt Cobain, sure. Heath Ledger. Like sure. we look at these people and their greatest achievements can never be sullied. They're As not going to live long enough to make fools of themselves. Natalie Wood. Right? Oh, Natalie Wood. That's who I was thinking of for episode two with the murder boat mystery. Oh. I couldn't help but think of her too. Oh man, that's heavy because that mystery is still unsolved and they still have a ton of theories surrounding that. Maybe Natalie Wood was a mermaid. <laughs> I, I doubt that. And so I think he was being a bit selfish. Well, he he was severely depressed one. And then I think he thought it was better to die than to live and fight. I see what you're saying. And especially, of course, of course, when you're depressed, everything that doesn't normally make sense makes sense. But even at the height of depression, if you have your dream mate, wouldn't you want to stay together for at least a little while longer? I, don't know. I think in his heart of hearts, though, he knew it was a lizard. But he <laughs> was down with it. These relationships. No, he reptiles. openly says you're the best you're the one I've been missing out this whole time. I feel like suicide is never the answer and I feel things were not that bad. It's hard to understand the plight of the rich, famous, and beautiful, but... That's true. As you said, things that don't make sense tend to make a lot of sense when you're depressed. Yeah, you got a good point there. Don't fall victim, Zara. As you you continue your meteoric rise, don't... Thank you. If you ever find me getting dangerously close to my cat, just (laughs) tap me on the shoulder and remind me that he's just a cat and he's not a beautiful, handsome person. I will keep that in mind. (laughs) Moving right along. Right, okay. So, episode four. Duel. Duel as in two, not duel as in fight. Duel two. Yeah, this one was my favorite. I love this episode. There are a couple of reasons it was my favorite. One was it's not soul-crushingly depressing. It has a kind of uplifting quality to it. The one thing I didn't like was that it was such a cliffhanger. This is the note that you ended the series on. And I get it. You want to leave the door open for more. But I did not feel very fulfilled. 
unfulfilled at the end of it. I don't feel satisfied. It feels unfinished. I feel like the show is just getting started now. Yeah, and exactly. finding its tone, its voice, its, its storytelling style. And it's just such a damn shame that there are only four episodes of the series. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the art, the music, and I enjoyed the voice acting, which the Count D in particular, he's played by Toshihiko Seki, who apparently is a very famous Japanese voice actor, and I have heard him in other stuff. Also, Leon, who was played by Masaya Onosaka, he really rocked it too. But, Zara, you were saying that the dub was actually really good. The dub is fantastic. Fantastic. Um, I was surprised at how much I really enjoyed the dub. Echoing your thoughts on the Japanese cast, yeah, oh my gosh, fabulous. Especially Count D captured such a beautiful androgyny, a mystery, all the mystery. Oh, yeah. The otherworldliness of that character was just captured awesome. But I have to give credit to John Demita, who plays Count D in the English dub. Detective, all I'm doing is telling you the truth. Whether you believe it or not, he's up to you. And the voice of Leon, Alex Fernandez. First of all, if he thought a woman was a lizard, he must have been on drugs. And second, you and I both know a woman can't be a lizard, so he had to be on drugs. They really did a good job of catching the tones of these characters if they were speaking English. Like, so John Demita has a lightly accented Chinese accent. Oh, cool. And Leon sounds like this. (laughs) He just captures what Leon looks like, this kind of rough guy of the streets, street smart guy. He captures this unique voice quality to him. You always show up just in time for tea, detective. That's because you're always having tea when I show up. How's business? Good as usual? Can't complain. What can I do for you? And what is big in what makes a dub successful, as we've talked about, is the tone. Capturing the tone of the original and not making it cheesy or sound unreal. So really, I commend those two leads in the dub with keeping everything very grounded and capturing the tone of the original performances. One of the aspects that I do feel a dub does surpass the original is the use of accents. When a Japanese voiceover artist is performing or whatever, and the character is supposed to be from France, or from Russia or from China or whatever. They just say straight Japanese and that's it. And maybe throw in like a word or something. And But it's said in a very Japanese way. And that's kind of it. When the dub is brought over into English and possibly other languages, I don't know. They will manufacture appropriate accents to the appropriate character. So if it's a French character, it will be an English guy speaking with a French accent. If it's a Russian character, a Russian accent or whatever. They'll make that attempt. And that's one thing that I do value about the dubs. Totally. That's a great point. What often happens, I think, too, is that you try to capture the colloquialisms of whatever country the audience is going to be. Let's say you have a Southern US character. Character from the South has a certain sound. (laughs) Now, imagine if that same story were dubbed into, I don't know, German. It would be up to the German creative team to determine what kind of voice to cast so that the German audience would be able to instantly identify the class the region that this person, I'm not saying this is true, but Southern accents often are used on characters who either are not so super educated. Rednecks. Rednecks, yeah. Like that can be part of it. So it's like, what's the equivalent accent in Germany? Oh, it's this one particular region is known for. 
you know? So I think in Japan, in Japanese anime, they do try to do that. Like, for example, with Leon, Leon's very rough. He always uses really rough masculine pronouns. Sure. Whereas Count D's Japanese is so excessively polite and feminine. And so that's how they capture within the language characterization. So I agree with you. In when its stuff is translated into English, you then apply those accents to it. That's a layer of consideration that adds to it, lends believability. I, it's just something I've noticed because a lot of anime, and particularly a lot of anime that we will discuss, has multicultural characters in it. So you have characters from other countries, from Germany, from France, from London, from America, whatever. I know the method of the Japanese that's delivered is variable based on that but it's always Japanese I don't get an international feel from the characters mm. other than occasionally they try to say merci yeah or, or <laughs> some word in the original language which unfortunately yeah. due to linguistic cultural implications it's hard for the Japanese voice actor to pull off and one of the things that I do admire the English dubbing people will just get a native speaker to come in and do it they do do that sometimes in Japanese as well because I have seen anime where they bring in like the English guy to uh. say the American lines but unfortunately for whatever reason they're just not very good uh. like it's literally hey I know a guy who speaks English he lives in my building oh <laughs> just get him in here and say this line okay cool like yeah 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 and it reads a little weird the more authentic something is the more believable so the fact that these yeah. are characters in Los Angeles sure you know it makes sense that they're speaking English no that's definitely something that, that I agree with all right, so that was a huge preview of our subverse dub debate. So good. Tell us about episode four. Episode four, Duel. So this episode deals with a pet that is of Chinese folklore. And maybe you can speak to this, Mason, the, the Qiding. Yeah. Which is a mythological figure that has great power. Tremendous it, power. It's half griffin, half dragon, half lion. It's a huge mythological descendant of the gods in Eastern Chinese mythology. And it has dominion over other lesser creatures too. It's the king of the beasts. The king of the beasts. Yeah, yeah. Absolutely. It opens with a little voiceover of a man who looks very much like the dad in Gremlins, might I add, in like a trench coat and a hat. And he's like, long ago, I visited a shop in Chinatown. <laughs> right. And the mask, the, you know, they sold me a Kirin. And then I became president of the United States. Thanks a lot, Franklin Roosevelt, <laughs> FDR. Yeah, which, well, we'll get into that. Right. Kirins are so cool. I love this episode. So we then cut to the present day and there's a huge group of people outside Dee's pet shop and Leon arrives and he sees all these people who are amassed looking at this guy who came out of a limo. It's this tall, handsome, blonde guy asking, let me in. I want to talk to you about what you have. I want to buy something. Leon says, hey, what's going on here? The assistant to this tall guy is like, Roger, we got to get out of here. We don't want the cops. Better get out of here. The blonde guy is like, I'm, I'm here for this. I know you have it. Let me have it. And the county is, I don't have it. I don't have what you're looking for. So the two men leave in the limo and people, they're like, who is that? And it was this guy named Roger Stanford, who is a congressman and his assistant named Kelly, male assistant named yeah. Kelly. Kelly uh, Vincent. Oh, kitty. <laughs> They've been best friends since they were kids. 
And Roger is making a play for office. He wants to become president. Kelly is his aide and will do anything to help get him there. Well, it's actually interesting that you say, because isn't it that actually Roger doesn't really care about it, but Kelly wants him to be the next president. Oh, you don't think Roger wants it as badly? I don't think Roger cares about anything other than like going on dates. With yeah. Him. Womanizing, probably some drug use. He's partying. Kelly's and, the and far kinda, more serious one of the two. Yeah. Roger is definitely tripping on power. Kelly is the one that I think at one point he actually says, if I could do it, I would do it. But I don't have the looks. I don't have the pedigree. I don't have the whatever. Charisma. That, yeah. The charisma. The that, it factor. Yeah. That Roger has. Roger has it. I am going to make Roger the next president and it'll make everybody's life wonderful. And Kelly gives this speech essentially to Nancy, who is Roger's wife. So right. Roger has stepped out to go on a date and then this beautiful blonde woman comes in and you see her talking to Kelly and it's revealed that that's Roger's wife and Roger's stepping out on her. And all Nancy wants is to have a family. That's her biggest happiness in life. She wants a family. She wants a house. She wants a couple of kids and a dog. And she's really sad and frustrated because it seems like that's not something Roger wants to give her at all. Yeah, Roger is effectively not committing to the marriage. To put this in context, this is revealed after they leave the pet shop and go home and Kelly is working in the office and Roger comes in and, and Kelly's like, hey, Roger, I need you to look over this speech or whatever. And Roger is just like, oh, you'll handle it. I have places to be. And he leaves. And that's when Nancy comes in. It's clear that she and Kelly have a connection. At one point, Kelly reaches for her, but then pulls away. I definitely got that Kelly is in love with oh, Nancy. Yeah. I mean, Nancy is very much this kind of beautiful maiden in a tower type thing. Yeah. Like she's, she's not going out. She's sitting at home waiting for her philandering husband, even though she's dropped it gorgeous. Ladies, so, don't find yourself in that situation. Well, okay. Yeah. Kelly brings Nancy to the pet shop. Well, first Nancy kind of reveals to him her fantasy, her like, this is all I really want. Yeah. And Kelly is like, yeah, man. Go so they go to the, the pet store. Pet store. And Count D, upon seeing Nancy, kind of has this flash and it's we don't see what that flash is, but he clearly sees her and he says something like, oh, this woman. He very clearly recognizes something about Nancy. Something is, great in her. Yeah, phenomenally great. And Nancy doesn't know about it. She doesn't even recognize that and this is going And she's creeped on. out that Count D is like being so respectful. He bows to her. Oh, he kneels. Mm -hmm. He gets down and kneels. At I'm last. honored to have you here. Or at last you've come, king of the beasts, whatever your will is. Or I don't, like, I don't he, think he goes that far. He goes pretty far. He's very, very much venerating her. And she's like, uh. <laughs> and then he reveals that he has the Kirin. At that point to Kelly, he yeah, says that, right? Yeah, he's like, if you want oh, it. Oh, yes, if you want it. But you and the senator have to come, the, con the congressman have to come back here together. But it's because of what he saw in Nancy, right? You think that was the triggering moment? Well, I mean, yeah, that's where D reveals. He's like, all right, I was lying before I have it. And you need to come back and get it. It but, being the Kirin. Right. But what is kind of mind blowing to me about it is Nancy is what triggers it. Yeah. But he doesn't say, I'll give it to Nancy. He says, go get Roger and come back and I'll give it to you guys. I have a theory about that, which would, we'll talk to at the, yeah, about the end okay. when we reveal what okay. actually happens. All right, cool. Because I'm Because that's confusing to me too. Yeah. That is confusing to me. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
but I think I have an idea of what it is. Okay. So Kelly and Roger come back the next day and Kelly tells Nancy, essentially, this is why I love Roger so much and why I will not stop until he's president. When I was a boy, my father died in Vietnam. My mother was a drunk and I basically was raising myself and we flash back to him in his childhood home and there's a knock on the door and he's scared and he goes to his mother. She's completely out of it. Again, addiction, the theme of addiction. Right, and he's worried that child services is essentially going to come take him. Take him, yeah. And who opens the door but Roger, who's a little boy, because Roger comes from a family of politicians. Yeah, long line. Long line. Uh, I think they imply that his great-grandfather was president. Oh, maybe. Yeah, and so Roger comes. Kelly won some award that Roger was giving. And so the two then were inseparable from that time. He changed Kelly's life and put him him on this path. Yeah, he gave him a a safe place to live and stuff. Yeah. A mentorship program or whatever. But ironically, Kelly is the one that actually is a person worth being around because Roger is just a playboy. This becomes apparent as they progress through high school. Kelly's the one that's diligently studying. Roger's just off with the cheerleaders. It's the difference between being born into something versus making yourself into something, Mm. which is so interesting about these two men. Truth. (laughs) So Roger and Kelly. Roger and Kelly return to the pet shop. And Count D essentially takes them to the back room and reveals a beautiful little Chinese girl. Who is, in fact, the Kieran in human form. Now, mm-hmm. I don't know if we covered this, but the reason Roger is so dead set on getting the Kieran is because, as has been shown throughout history, whenever the Kieran makes a deal with somebody, that person becomes one of the greatest rulers of the time. So Roger is like, with the Kieran, I can become president of the United States, no problem. And I think they mentioned, too, that the Kieran gives wishes, you know, bestows whatever the, the master wants but that greatness always comes with the cost of blood. I don't know if they actually tell that to the people. Just yet. Okay. Yeah. So the two men see a little girl and instantly what you were thinking at the top of the series is, wait a minute, he's in the child slave trade. This yeah. is wrong. This is really wrong. And the two men, and I love this moment. At first, they're like, no, 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 no. You better clean up your act or you're going to find the police shutting down this place. We're out of here. We don't need this. This is going to be a huge scandal. I actually wanted to say that my opinion of Roger in this moment skyrockets totally he handles it so well like a man yeah he's just listen i don't know what's going on here but my advice to you is this and i disavow all knowledge and i'm keeping my record clean and see ya yeah no ross see this is the thing roger's not other than he's cheating on his wife i mean he's a good guy other than well that I'm not sure that he actually cares about his constituents. What I will say is that he's a very good politician. He knows the job and he knows how to play the game. Are his intentions pure? Would he actually be a good leader? I don't know. Totally true. At the end of the day, though, if he sees a child being prostituted, he'll stand up for them. Oh, absolutely. And also, he was very careful to keep his name and likeness away from everything. He played the game really well. That's true. Very impressed with everything that he did. But again, would he be a good leader? I don't know. Yeah. So the two men turn away in disgust and Count D then gives them this speech that to me, again, it's very Shakespearean. It reminded me of the scene in Macbeth where the three witches talk to Macbeth. They basically tell the men, Count D tells the men, great power is waiting for you. Yeah, he prophesies. He prophesies. It's a prophecy. Yeah. And this bewitches them. Well, also the incense. The incense, it's very hazy. It's it's, it's burning. It's burning. So basically the power 
power seduces them into taking the kid, the yeah, promise of power. County basically openly states, if you take this child, you will win your governorship, you will win the next four elections, and in eight years' time, you will perhaps, be president. Like Perhaps no. I can count the president of the United States yeah. as a patron of my shop. <laughs> exactly. And I guess at that point, they're heavily inundated with the suggestion. of So they're like, yeah, okay, okay let's do it. But they say this thing where the Kieran has to choose its master. So we then cut to Roger and Kelly driving with the little Kieran girl in the back seat. And they're like, man, what did we just do? Dude, we got yeah. a kid. I love and- <laughs> that part where they where they kind of come out of the spell. And yep. they're like, why is there a girl in the back seat? What, how did we take this illegal child? And Roger, to his credit, is like, hey, at least she's with us and not going to be in the hands of some creep. Both of them are well-intentioned at this point. Yeah, yeah, and they're yeah. like, we won't have a scandal. At this point, they're driving on this windy cliff, like on yeah. Mulholland Drive or something. Right, right, right. And the school bus is whizzing past them out of control really fast. The bus driver is like, the brakes are out of control. I can't stop. Right. And it's a school bus full of children. Of course. Pulling at all the heartstrings. And the Kieran is smiling. Smiling calmly in the back seat. Yeah. The men get on the other side of the bus and they force the bus into the side walls to slow it down. And so they succeed. They save the school bus full of children, but they go careening off the side of the cliff. But to be fair, one thing that I did really respect was that both of the guys were on board with the plan. It wasn't totally. It wasn't like one of them was, no, don't do it. It's too dangerous for us. They both were like, do it. See, that's why I ultimately liked Roger, even though he's a womanizer. Roger has good elements. Yeah. I'm just not sure that it carries over on a grand scale. If somebody came to Roger and was like, yeah, there's that school bus full of people, or... I'll give you a million dollars and some cocaine and a woman no. over here. I, you know, I don't know. Here's what I think, Mason. I just don't know. I think he should have gone into education as a career because clearly he cares <laughs> about children okay. and not much else. Fair enough. Fair <laughs> enough. I would agree with that assessment. So we're yeah. at the bottom of the cliff. Kelly comes to and he sees Roger's body is several feet away. Roger's unconscious. And in front of him, Kelly sees the Kirin, who has now manifested itself into this dragon eagle. Yeah, giant Lion beast. beast. Big booming masculine voice. Yeah. And the Kirin says, essentially, Master, what is it you wish? And that is the thing. So the Kirin has chosen Kelly as the master, I assume based on their reaction to the school bus. But both of them were so in tune with each other. I just don't know why he chose Kelly over Roger. I would argue the choice happened earlier, actually. Oh, when he was there with Nancy? Yeah. Mm, So coming with Nancy was, that's interesting. And so initially, Kelly wishes Roger to be president. And then he's like, no, wait, my wish is for Nancy. Nancy to be happy. Yeah. He's like, that's my real wish. I want Nancy to be happy. And so the Kieran says, by your own hands. You can make it happen. Just reach out. Go for it. Your fate will come to pass. Just reach for it with your own hand. And so big flash. And then actually, I think we cut to the police station. And I love the humor of the show. I want to say that again, because Leon is eating a sandwich and he gets news that the senator and his aide were in a car crash and he like spits his sandwich out on Jill and like <laughs> I, I, you, you know in that's a show true. that's this creepy and has you know this this yeah, atmosphere I, the lighthearted moments really stand out you do you need something to temper the mix oh 
oh yes, yes, because this happens. So he's like, mayor, I demand to be able to investigate what's going on. And you see the back of the mayor's chair and it swivels around. And of course, it's Count it's D. Count D. And he's bastard. just like, oh, hey, did you want, did you want something? <laughs> and that was great. It's revealed that the mayor is a, a patron of Count yes. D because he has a penguin. He is a penguin named Pengi. Yes. And then similarly, the chief of police is a... Is a dog. From Count D. These, these moments of levity really brighten the whole show. And it's such a smart way to control people, to think about you're not controlling people through money, but you're really tugging it, appealing to people's hearts. People love their pets. So of course they're going to trust true. the proprietor who sold their pet. <laughs> oh, very, very accurate. So then we're in the hospital. And we see, it's a point of view of someone in the hospital bed. And, and Nancy's like hovering over them. Nancy's hovering over them and she's, oh, you know, I'm so glad you survived. Uh, Kelly was killed instantly in the car crash. And the voice that's coming from our point of view is Kelly's voice. And right. Kelly's like, wait, what? And he holds up his hand and it's Roger's wedding ring. He's like, Roger's wedding ring? What? And he looks into the mirror and it's Roger's face. Dun, dun, dun. Kelly's so, in Roger's body. So the Kieran effectively gave him Roger's body. Everyone will think he's Roger now. So he has Roger's pedigree. He has Roger's good looks and charisma. And he stuff. has the whole thing, whole but package. the mind of Kelly, who is arguably the better leader and yeah. the better politician. And so what I think is a very touching moment, he he turns and he looks at Nancy and he's, this moment has changed me and I'm going to be faithful to you. Give and you I'm, everything that you want. Yeah, I'm going to give you the house, the dog. And I thought this was interesting that Nancy doesn't pick up on this. But as far as I know, she only told that stuff to Kelly. Yeah. But she's just kind of like, yes, Roger, rock on. This is what I got. She had a little bit of a sense of, wait, Roger? There was a little bit yeah, of searching there. I guess that's true. What's really cool is when he's giving her this speech about, we'll have a little house and a couple kids, they show a shot of the White House. Yeah, I'll give you a house that we can live in and have dinner at every day with our kids in the in the yard. Or yeah. And it's the White House. It's, <laughs> yeah. It was great. That's the end of the episode and the end of the series. Yeah, it ends on an upbeat. It was different from all the other episodes because normally all the other episodes, it was kind of tragedy or horror happened, but this one was very uplifting. But in the same way, it was also a double-edged sword because I was like, there's no more. That's it. It's just felt very unfinished. I wonder what happens next. Nothing. Yes, you just have to read the manga. We don't have any more of the anime, right? So I think that that's exactly what happened to me. I saw the first four episodes and I was, wow, I really love these characters, especially, you know, Count D and Leon. Wait, there's more stories involving them? And I bought all the manga. At that. Oh, you did? I wow. did, in Japanese, because oh. I was a Japanese student at the time. Nice. And I was like, this will be good practice, too. Yeah, good job. Thank you. And, <laughs> and Did uh, it work out? I mean, yeah. Okay. Yeah. I read a lot of them, but then they were translated into English, I think by Viz. Uh, years, Tokyo Pop. Or Tokyo Pop, several years later. And so got a wider audience, which is fantastic. So if you watch the anime and you like it, and you want to go more in depth in that world, definitely read the manga. There are new characters. There's ongoing story arcs. The whole relationship is fleshed out between Leon and Count D. D's backstory. You have lots of just interesting Monster of the Week stories too. It, it all gets revealed. And they expand a little on Leon too. Leon has a younger brother yeah. and a couple cousins and uh, Jill is in there too. I enjoyed it. Thank you for introducing me to it. I thought it was, if you like Twilight Zone or uh, Friday the 13th, the TV series, or, or gremlins or gremlins or anything like that then i would really recommend it i think you'd you'd find it really uh, interesting 
Yeah. It's very entertaining. So yeah, check it out if you can. It's available on DVD. Oh, it is? Uh, yeah. On, I, on like Amazon. I'm not sure. It might be out of print now, but I, I bought the DVD back in 2004. I'm sure there's anime stores that can get it. Yeah. The art is so, I want to say again, like how beautiful the art is, especially in the manga. Like, the manga art is amazing. It's gorgeous. There's like certain panels there that I remember I like scanned and printed out and hung up in my dorm room. Wow. So I was like, it's so pretty. That's dedication. Was I mean, it D? Yeah. Oh, it was yeah. all D. Okay. D's beautiful. Yeah. And very androgynous. Oh. He's like David Bowie on steroids. Unreal. And Young David Bowie. You know, I think I even brought in a picture of him once when I was getting a haircut and I was like, I want my hair to look like this. Nice. How'd that go? <laughs> oh, great. It's fine. Yeah? It's Do you have a picture of the haircut? No. It's oh. basically my C47 haircut. Maybe oh, so. which rocked. By the way, yeah, I still, I miss it. It's great. But yeah, Pet Shop of Horrors. I love it. It's so watchable. Highly recommend it. Check it out. Check it out if you get a chance. I, I have a question. Spay and neuter, guys. Oh, yeah. Spay and neuter your pet. Don't want the rabbit overpopulation. Rabbit population. <laughs> I'm curious, what do you think is another monster that's going to be in Pet Shop of Horrors? Mm, let's see. I feel like, if we're talking vices... Right? Yeah. Ego is something and narcissism is something, especially in the selfie mm. obsessed society, mm. would be fascinating. So some sort of creature that would cause their human to reflect on their own narcissism would be fascinating. Like a really shiny bird. Man, that's a good one. That's a great one. What about you? I was thinking it was going to go more mythological. And so mm. I was thinking maybe a griffin. I was hoping it was going to ah. come that somebody was going to come seeking nobility or seeking freedom or whatever. And he was going to be like, here's your griffin. But that it was going to take him over the edge. He was going to be like, I'm un- I'm unstoppable now. And, and uh, hubris, hubris, I guess I was, uh, was kind of talking about it. You know, overweening pride. Anyway. That's cool. It reminds me a little bit of, um, there's an episode of Gargoyles, the American Disney animated series from a lot 95, people, 94, yeah. 95. Great show. Very strong cult following. I've never Great seen show. it. Oh my gosh, you've never seen it? No. A All lot right. of people have told me. It's like, amazing. It's, it's like an anime in sense of the the continuity, the storytelling. Mm-hmm. Uh, Greg Wiseman, who's the showrunner, that's creative genius at coming up with these worlds and incorporating mythology and Shakespeare. And awesome, um, big fan of that series. There's an episode where a man who's just lost his son mm. in an accident attempts to bring Anubis, the jackal god oh, of Anubis, uh, yeah. Anubis, yeah, yeah, Anubis or Anubis, gotcha, because he wants to gain immortality and bargain with the god and be like, hey, give me my son back. Mm. And so that would be an interesting. That reminds me of Pet Shop of Horrors in the sense of it's like if it's sure. like a, a jackal or a dog that oh, people yeah. want to obtain immortality through. Oh yeah, that'd be awesome. Maybe there could be this great crowd sourced movement to make more of the anime. I'm sure if somebody reaches out to Matsuri, he's got to be down for making more. I would imagine. I would hope so. All right, great. Well, thanks again for coming out, Zara. It's been elucidating and amazing as always. Thanks or for having me. Yeah. And where can we uh, find out more about you? Oh, more about me? Uh, you can visit my website at zerafuzzle.com. Z-E-H-R-A-F-A-Z-A-L.com. She's a wonderful voice actress, a fantastic actress. She also does photos and models and clothing modeling and all this stuff. Oh, so. gosh. Just for friends. Just well, for friends. For I'm fun. I'm just saying I've seen it. So <laughs> no one rocks a hoodie the way you rock a hoodie. Thank Zara. you, Mason. <laughs> you oh, I appreciate that. Sure. So yeah, check her out. She's amazing. Check us out. Uh, check out Meltdown Comics. You can come and check us out. We have Meltdown U, where you can learn different 
classes on drawing and writing comics. We also have Melthology where you come and pay a small fee and draw for two and a half hours, one page, anything you want. doesn't matter your skill level. And then at the end of the night, everything's collected. And when you come back again next month, it's all given to you in a zine. That is wicked cool. Oh yeah, you should totally check it out. Also, if anyone's interested in any of the other podcasts that I produce for Meltdown, uh, we have the Disney Click, which is where Rick and Briars talk about everything that's Disney related. And then there's also History of the Batman, where London and Adam talk about various things in the Batman universe and where they came from and how they were developed and stuff. Just super, super educational stuff. And Pod Sequentialism with host Matt Kennedy, where he just basically interviews super interesting artists and gets their viewpoint on random topics like gender and equality and comics and violence in America and just interesting stuff. So yeah, check out any of that other stuff. And of course, come back to here too, because we're going to be talking about all these other obscure anime. Up in the attic. Yeah, because we're going to be reviewing all sorts of anime that probably you've never even heard of, but it's still super awesome and good and worthy of checking out. And I'm trying to raise awareness of it. Thanks a lot, Zara. Thanks, Mason. Yeah.